It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lutie. All right. Uh, Well, welcome to uh, the Monday edition, guys. Uh, Why don't we just start out with prayer and just allow God to take the lead in our time this morning. Father, there's nothing quite like a Monday, and we thank you for Mondays. We thank you for the fact that your mercies are new every morning. We submit to you, Lord, we submit uh, not just our time that is going to be before us in this week, but our lives, our very bodies. Lord, for you to fill, for you to use, for you to communicate through Lord, I just ask that you would demonstrate your life uh, in this earth, in and through us as the body of Christ. I pray that this time this morning, though it be short, would be rich and dense, and that you would impart to us precisely what is needed today in each of our lives. Not just those present here, but those that are actually going to be listening live, and also those that will listen via podcast in the future sometime. That this message would just be tailor-made to suit and to fit all of us, Lord, the body of Christ. Lord, we love you and submit to you with expectation. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, So on Mondays, we are going through a series called the Glossary of the Gospel. And so if you were going to be imparting to a new believer, say you lead someone to Christ and you want to impart to them an understanding of what it is to be a believer, and what it is to grow up into maturity, there is all sorts of things that are needed. And a lot of us cobble that together in Christianity over, you know, a decade, two decades. And I mean, there's certain things 15 years into it, you're like, I've never known that. And yet it's something that is actually rather important to know. And yet the way that Christianity functions today, we don't have something known as discipleship as the cornerstone. So a new believer comes in and they just sort of learn by osmosis, and that's a high-tech biology word, but it's a transfer of life over time. And God intended us to impart that which is in us into others. You know, as Paul says to Timothy, entrust what I've given to you to reliable men that they may be able to teach others. In other words, Paul imparted something to Timothy. What did he impart? Well, he imparted this treasure, this treasure of the gospel life, which includes a lot. There's a lot of dimension to that. Now Timothy has it. What's Timothy supposed to do with it? Impart it. So if you were a new believer, this is the sort of class you'd want to go through. You'd want to go through uh, the glossary of the gospel. You'd want to understand the terrain of scripture. You'd want to understand what God's intent is, how you are supposed to actually walk this life out. And so that's what this is. And it's it's, it's, it's rich. It's actually a very uh, powerful uh, understanding of those truths. But it's also good for those of us that have a little more gray hair in the kingdom of heaven. We've been around for a while to, for us to know what to impart. And so this is, I think we'd call it installment three, episode three of a series. Uh, because I, on Mondays and on Wednesdays, I'm sort of hitting this one. So this is our third one because we started last Monday on it. So, hey guys, if you're behind already and you've missed the first two, 
at least you know that we have a podcast, all right, Lorraine? So when you go back to Canada, uh, you can grab the podcast because I know you're wondering right now, what did I miss? Uh, yeah, yeah. So this one is called the position of the word. So if you've been trained here at Ellerslie, you'll notice uh, that's a familiar uh, concept. And if you've ever heard any of the sermons online, I'm oftentimes barking like, what's your position? And this is similar to that. Position in the kingdom of heaven is of great importance. And so each of these lessons that I'm giving, there's a key crux issue that I want to bring to the surface. And in this one, I want to bring forth at least the beginnings of the idea of position, which will become more and more significant as we progress. But the position of the word. And so when you hang around Christianity, you, you get this term word. And we all know what a word is. It's like, what's a word? Well, it's a collection of letters that form you know, some semblance of information that makes sense to all of us. It's a word. That's sort of a strange thing to define, word. And yet in the Bible, a word is of great importance. And what's funny is many people will hold up the Bible and call it the word of God. Like, that's the word of God. And that's true. That's what it is. And then many people will point at Jesus and say, that's the word of God. It's like, that's strange. Wait a minute. I thought the word of God was a book. Well, it is. And it's also Jesus. There's a whole bunch of dimension to the word. Okay? Now, I've written a lot of books, right? But you wouldn't call that the word. That's a collection of words. But the word, capital W, is very, very important for us to know and understand. So the position of the word. So I'm going to start with the understanding that the word is God's Bible, God's scripture. Okay, So when you think of the Bible, those 66 books that we've been talking about for quite some time now, that is, we're going to start with that as the word of God, okay? Now, you have a relationship with it. When you first come into understanding of this word, you are relating to it in some regard. So I'm going to give you some options. There's a lot of people in our modern day that put themselves above it. And they're like, well, it's an old, dusty book, and I'm sure it's a little dated in its ideas. And it probably has a lot of flaws in it because it's been translated over thousands of years. I mean, come on. There's no way that it's accurate, right? And then you hear all the whisperings, you know, they have the Da Vinci codes that come out. You have these various things which create question marks and doubt. And so there's a lot of people that put themselves above the word. And they stick the, uh, their glasses on the end of their nose and they sneer down at the word of God and they even pat it. They're like, oh, the poor book, you know, it has so many problems with it. But we will be merciful to it and still accept it as having some good moral themes to impart to us. But they are above it. So when it speaks, they critique it. They're like, well, I don't know if that's true. And they think they know more than the word of God. Okay, now, if I'm going to encourage you to grow strong in the kingdom of heaven, I'm going to, first of all, take that option off the table. If you approach the word of God as if you're better than it, and if you, that you know more than it, you're immediately starting off on the wrong foot. Okay? You will not succeed in the kingdom of God. You will not grow strong in your faith. You will not become a strong Christian, the way that is outlined in that very Bible. So here's another option. So the first one was to be above it. This next one is to be equal to it or beside it, as if the Bible is a buddy or a chum. And so if you have a buddy, what are you going to do? Like in our house, you know, they'd go and play foosball together or ping pong or uh, four square. And so, you know, they, they would play together. They'd hang out together. But imagine that your buddy says, hey, you need to go clean your room. Excuse me? 
excuse me, but you are not my dad or my mom. You are merely my buddy. You can't tell me what to do. You know that's how a lot of people look at the scriptures? Scripture has command in it. But if you were treating scripture as if it's just your buddy, guess what? You're going to look at it like, excuse me, but you can't tell me what to do. And as a result, though you have a great delight in scripture, and it's your buddy, and you like to hang out with it, you memorize it, and you memorize all the, the cool things that make you feel good, like he's going to make you lie down in green pastures, he's going to restore your soul, wonderful things, and they, they make you feel good, sort of like getting a goal in foosball, it's like, yeah! But then if it ever tells you what to do, hey, hey, you can't tell me what to do, so I'm going to also eh, nix that one off the table. If you want to grow strong in the kingdom of heaven, you can't be above the scripture. You also can't be equal to it, as if you know just as much as it knows. You are not just a buddy with scripture. I'm going to give you mysterious hidden option number three. You submit to the scripture, as if it, in fact, is above you. It knows more than you. It's God's word, and God is your creator. If you're a, as the Bible says, a, a pile of clay that is being shaped into, you know, like a, a bowl or a, a dish or a cup, it seems ridiculous that that bowl or dish or cup of clay would call back to the potter and tell the potter how best to do it. The potter is the potter, and that's exactly what God is making clear in his words. It's like, hey guys, I'm the one in charge here. If you want to know how I built you and what I built you for, it's best to come to me and ask as opposed to presume that you know better than I do. So in the kingdom of heaven, the position of the word is of great importance. It is not beneath you. It is not equal to you. It is above you. And if you want to grow strong in the kingdom of heaven, you have to understand that. So we go back in time, I don't know what it was, about 14 years ago or so, and there was a, a deepening in my life, okay? Because I... I don't like to say that I was equal to the scripture for a whole season of my life. I don't even like the thought because it sounds so utterly dangerous uh, in, my, in my mind with what I know now. But there were certain scriptures that I would sort of look at and go, well, yeah, but. And then I'd have this other scripture would come up, yeah, but. A, a classic example. Take no thought for your life. And then Jesus says it again. Take no thought for your life. Hey, take no thought for your life. It says it a whole bunch of times, one little stream. And I was thinking, well, okay. But you can't not take thought for your life. All right, so as a result, just my immediate default is some of you may have that same thought. It's like, well, I mean, come on, God. It's the buddy concept as opposed to, God, you said it. Now I need to understand it. I may not understand it, but I know it's true. So God instruct me. You see, one is submitted, the other one thinks so highly of its own thought processes. And I remember it was a very key moment in my life where I dethroned my own thoughts. And I said, my thoughts are now under God and submitted. My mind is submitted to the word of God. What the word of God says, I pre-agree to it. I have pre-decided that it is right. And I don't care if it offends my mind. I don't care. I actually believe that God knows more than me. Huge moment. You see, we're not discipled in that anymore, and as a result, we have a tendency to exalt our own thinking. And the danger is, when we do that, we lose the essence of what the Word of God is supposed to do in our life. 
So I'm going to teach you a Greek word. This is sort of fun. Uh, and it's logos. That's how you pronounce it. It's L-O-G-O-S, though. And so it looks in the English-speaking uh, world as logos. And so it's fine if you say it that way. You just won't sound Greek. And so if you want to sound Greek and be very impressive to people, you say logos, okay? So I'll test you later and see which one, if you're trying to sound smart or if you're trying to sound just American. Uh, so this is, by definition, a word expressed, something spoken, a thing revealed through speech, the vehicle of revelation. Now, let me see if I can give you a better understanding of that. This, is, this definition will make sense, but you have to sort of create a mental picture in my mind. It really helps. You see... A word is very, very significant to God. He didn't have to reveal himself. Did you know that? God's God. And when we sinned and violated his word, he could have just said, enough with you. He didn't need to impart to us a word. He didn't need to give us anything, but he did. So here's, here's a word. Now imagine that I said, I have a thought right now. I want you to tell me what it is. Matthew, tell me what my thought is. Yeah, oh, you think it's about that, huh? You're gonna, you see, that's, that's reasonable at least. You know, but no one can read my mind. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible asks all the wise men to tell him what his dream was and what it meant? It was like, if you're truly a wise man, you'll do that. I mean, that's a pretty good test. And what's amazing is then Joseph comes along and actually does tell him what his dream was and interprets it. That's extraordinary, okay? That's a whole other level, which Matthew, I don't know if you're at right now uh, to be able to tell me what my thought is, right? So uh, now here, here, I have a thought, and I want Matthew to have it. So what do I do? I clothe my thought into a word or a series of words, right? I clothe this invisible thought that he can't see, he can't know, unless it is clothed in a word. And when I clothe it in a word, what do I do? I shoot it out into the air. It's like, and then Matthew, boom, is hit. It goes straight into his ear. And it goes into his brain. He unpacks it. He's like, and now I say, what was I thinking? You were thinking, and he's able to tell me. How did what was invisible inside of me get inside of him? I I know. You see, we we have lost the magical wonder of this extraordinary communication device. We just take it for granted because we grow up going gag, gag, goo, goo, and then we start talking. These words form, and we start taking that which is invisible and unknown inside of us and putting words to it so that it becomes a communication device, a transportation vehicle. I have something here, and I package it, and with this tongue, I shoot it out into the air, and it carries itself into Matthew's ear, and he is able to understand that which is hidden and invisible. Okay, now, do you understand why Jesus being the word of God is important? There is something that God has, his nature, who he is, which is so grand, so incomprehensible, but he wants us to know it. He wants us to hear it. He wants us to understand the grandeur of who he is. And so he packages this grandeur this invisible mystery of himself into a word. And Jesus comes and says, and when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The word is the carrying device of the invisible attributes of God. Isn't that extraordinary? So when you understand a word, you recognize this is the great gift that God has revealed himself because he wants to be known. 
We have the privilege of knowing God Almighty. All right? Let that begin to sink in. I mean, just extraordinary. So I'm going to read the definition again. Now that you have my help, my sort of mental picture, it's a word expressed, something spoken, a thing revealed through speech, the vehicle of revelation. God has revealed himself. How? Through his word. So when I say word, remember I started with the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. God went out of his way to give us this. And then that expands. When you begin to understand the Bible, you begin to understand even more and more about the word. We'll get to that. For the word, that's the word logos, the logos of the Lord is right. And all his works are done in truth. By the word, the logos of the Lord, were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You know what? This is in the Old Testament, okay? So this is before Jesus came. And what does it say in the Old Testament? But it says that the word of the Lord is right. And what you're going to see is that Jesus is going to come and he's going to prove the perfect rightness of God, or as we know it as righteousness of God. And by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. You know what it's going to reveal in the New Testament? It's going to tell you very clearly, because when I say who made the heavens and the earth, you can say, well, God did. Well, that would be accurate. But very specifically, you know what it's going to reveal in the New Testament? All things were created by Jesus, by the word. And so what we see in Psalm 33, long before Jesus came, it's a thousand years before Jesus came, we're going to see this fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. So again, this is John. The apostle John really is fascinated by this, this idea of Jesus being the word, this carrying, this vehicle of revelation. In the beginning was the word. It's an amazing thought when you, when you ponder this because a lot of us think, you know, how long ago was Jesus born? Well, 2,000 years ago. So we're like, okay, that's when he began. When in actuality, he was God with us. And it says that his goings forth, this is the prophecy about this one to come known as Jesus, his goings forth are from old and everlasting. He doesn't have a beginning. He's God. Okay, so in the beginning was the word. Wait a minute, well, I, thought he, I thought he was born 2,000 years ago. No, in the beginning, he was there. In the beginning was the word or the logos, and the word, the logos, was with God, and the word, the logos, was God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And the word, the logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Oh, that's incredible. So Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. So think about what I said. It's like I have an invisible thought. And I said, can you figure it out? You see, God is invisible. It says no man has seen him at any time. But the Son has revealed him. The word has revealed him. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, I'm going to read that again, because remember how I started? I talked about the position of the word. And I said, if you think of yourself as above the word, eh, all will go south in your Christian life. If you're equal to the word, eh, it will not function. You will not function as a strong Christian. You submit to the word and put it above you. Ding, 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 ding. That's how it works. So what do you see? You see that the word of God is the text, sure. But what does the text reveal? What is it all about? The word of God 
has come in human form. He has fulfilled all of that Bible. And he's walked on the stage of time. And he revealed that which was invisible. You see who God is by seeing Jesus Christ, who is known as the Word. Now what does it say about that one? It says that in all things he might have the preeminence. The preeminence. That which is eminence is position above. The preeminence above all things. He is the head of all things. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the shepherd of shepherds. He's the father of fathers. He's the friend of friends. He's the bridegroom of bridegrooms. He's the capital version of everything. All things are under his feet. So where does the word of God land? Way up here, and every knee bows before the word of God. You want to live a strong Christian life, you submit to the word. You see, the way you treat the text of Scripture is the way you're treating the Word of God made flesh. You see, when you diminish and come above the Word of God in text, what are you doing? You're coming above the Word of God in person. When you're equal to the Word of God in text, and you're like, I'm just chumming around with it, what are you doing? You're trying to diminish Jesus to bring him down to your level. But he is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. Christianity functions through submission. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. What a scripture. So key terms for the day. I grouped these for us. Word and scripture. So word, I just described, so I'm not going to go into it again. But it is fair and right that when you hear someone hold up their Bible and say, this is the word of God, it is true. Okay, That is an accurate way of saying it. Because it is the Holy Spirit, God, who carried along the writer's of that book, 40 of them plus, to actually reveal that which was invisible, to showcase to us God's person, his plan, his idea, who he is. However, that is also found in the fulfillment of the one known as Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the essence of that book. That book is everything that reveals him. He is the whole point of it. So it's like a a, a map to buried treasure. You could see trees on the map. You could see mountains on the map. You could see a stream and a bubbling brook. It's like, great, it's it's all important. But hey, what's that map for? It's to show us a treasure. And so the whole point of the word of God, why is the Holy Spirit carrying around all these writers to write about trees and mountains and brooks and all that? Why is it doing it? So you could see the X that marks the spot or the cross that marks the spot. That's what it's about. You want to find the treasure? That's what you go after. So that's the entire purpose of the scriptures to reveal Jesus. So Christ and Messiah. Now, I probably should have said Messiah, Christ. The word Messiah, if you've ever heard it, is a Hebrew word. And Christ is a Greek word. They mean the same thing. So if you ever hear Jesus called Jesus the Messiah, and then you hear Jesus Christ, It is saying he is the one that fulfilled. Christ and Messiah mean the one upon whom the anointing is. In other words, there is one that is favored by God to do this. There is one that will come that will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. There is one that will come that will reveal the invisible. There is one that will come that will be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. He will have no sin. He will have no guile in his mouth. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It's very specifically given. And so as a result, 
This is the one that we're awaiting. He's talked about all throughout the Old Testament as the Messiah, as the anointed one. And then he comes. So in the Greek, it's Christos, means the anointed one. And so when you see Jesus Christos, that is meaning he is the one. It's not just Jesus. Jesus was a common name. Yeshua. It was the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament. It was a common name. There were a lot of Yeshuas. However, Yeshua the Christ, Jesus Christ, that's a big deal. So when we use that term, we're saying he is the one. He is the revelation of the invisible. He's the one that did it. He's the one that fulfilled it. It's a big term. Law, grace. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with first, second down there, and then I'll go back to law, grace. But first and seconds, I know some of you have heard me talk about first and seconds many, many, many times. And yet, in understanding your first steps forward in Christianity, you have to know how to rightly divide Scripture. And rightly dividing Scripture, there's all sorts of key points that help us understand key things that unlock the heart of God. For instance, in the Old Testament, we have a lot of law. But that's not bad. It's just that when you rightly divide Scripture, you recognize you have to know where we're at. You have to understand that Jesus fulfilled that law and that now in Christ, we are no longer under that law, but that law had a purpose. And so it's tricky, you know, when you first come to Christianity, it's sort of like, now what am I supposed to do with all this law? You know that law is still beneficial to us? It all reveals Christ. It all reveals his righteousness. It all reveals his manner, his ways, and his wisdom. However, it, the means of salvation is not via law. It's via Christ. And so as a result, when we're handling first and seconds, it's, it's important because there's always a first and always a second. The first cannot save. Only the second can save. The first is usually of this earth. It's of flesh. It's of the first man, the old man. The second is of the Holy Spirit. And so what you see all throughout Scripture, we'll just start. Cain, Abel. So Adam and Eve have two. Technically, we know, just by using logic, that they had more than two children. But there's two that God seems to point out. Why? Because it's important. The first and the second which offering? Remember, they, all, they both bring an offering uh, before God. Which one does he accept and which one does he reject? He rejects the first. He accepts the second. And we're all like, that seems so random. Why would he do that? He's making a point. You see, all throughout history, he is showing us something. Let's go to another one. Ishmael, Isaac. So Abraham has two sons. God rejects the first and says the second one is the one born of promise. The first one is born of man's own attempt. Man's work. The second one is the one that pleases God. Okay, now Rebecca has, she's pregnant and she has twins in her womb. The first one that comes out is Harry all over. Remember him? He's Esau. The second one is Jacob. Which one does God reject? Which one does God accept? He rejects the first and the second one he accepts. And many of us feel like this is random when we're reading the Bible for the first time. I'm just telling you it's not. God is very purposeful in what he is doing because he's showing us a pattern. Did you know that we have a first and a second too in our life? Our first man is our old man. We're in Adam. That's how we're all born. And unless we are born again, unless we put off the first man and believe and get on the second, put him on his clothing and put our trust in him, we actually die the first man's death. 
because that's what's due us. We're under a just condemnation. We are deserving of eternal separation from God in hell. However, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes, repents, believes in Christ Jesus will be saved. And so what we have is first and second. Now look at the, the kings of Israel. Remember the first king of Israel? Saul. Second king of Israel? David. God rejects the first. The second one is a man after his own heart. All right, so all throughout history, you're going to see this pattern. I mean, it's, look at the, how the Bible's broken up. Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament can't save. Only the new covenant in Christ's shed blood brings you salvation. Okay, so then you also have the first Adam. He's just called Adam. And then you have the second man. So you have the first man and the second man. It's weird to call Jesus the second. 77 generations into, after creation, he's called the second man. It's because he is. There's a first, and all of us are in the first, and then kaboom, God comes. And he says, guys, I'm an Adam. I'm an Adam as Adam is supposed to have lived. So Jesus is the last Adam. He's the second man. And unless you are born again, unless you become a second Unless you put off the first and take on the second, Jesus, you have no life. Okay, so this is very critical in our development as Christians to recognize that we are in our first condition in the flesh. We are separated from God and we are in need of rescue. In Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit of God so that in this body, we don't need to live according to the flesh but now we can live according to the Holy Spirit. And so just as Jesus revealed that which was invisible, do you know what we can do? We can reveal that which is invisible, and this world can see the life of God Almighty in us. When they looked at Jesus, Jesus could say, and when you see me, you see the Father. You know what we can say? And when you see me, you see Jesus. That's the great mystery of Christianity. It's called the mystery of godliness. That we have the, you know what godliness is? God behavior. There's a mystery of it. How in the world could God get God behavior out of this? I was pointing to LeRae specifically. <laughs> He's from Canada, guys, just in case you're wondering. So we as Americans like to poke at Canadians. Uh, but that is a miracle of miracles. That God Almighty has humbled himself and given us a means of taking these wretches Every one of us knows we probably have a PhD in how bad we are, right? Maybe the world doesn't totally know what a wretch these little piles of humanity are, but we do. He has chosen this as his dwelling place. That's extraordinary. He has saved us from the first so that we could be in the second, and we too could be vehicles of revelation. We could be what's called in the New Testament living epistles, living letters that are meant to be read publicly. So when this world sees us, shocker of all shockers, they can see Jesus. So law and grace, that's a first and a second. That's why you see me going uh, back to it. You see, in our first man, we have to receive law. You know why? We have to, God has to expose the fact that we need a savior. He needs to reveal to us the fact that we're sinners. You know that you don't know that you're a sinner unless you have the law? You think you're fine, in fact. Oh, I'm fine. I'm a, I'm a basically good person. But when the law comes, it exposes our need of a rescuer. 
And so then we become ready for grace. You see, grace is God's ability to work on our behalf. He fulfilled the law for us. He can do it for us. So our faith is not in ourself. Law has to expose itself as at the very center of this operation. And there's your problem. But we don't know how to save ourselves from ourselves. We can just bemoan the fact and go, I have a problem. What must I do to be saved? And then we as Christians come along and say, I, I have just the thing for you. His name is Jesus. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Repent and believe. Put off the old. Put off everything you trusted in before this. And cling to your Savior. The great secret of entry. The triumvirate of the word. So triumvirate's a big, big word. Uh, three variations of the word, okay? So if, you know, like in the Trinity, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're all God. The word has different expressions. So we have the word of God in text, the Bible. We have the word of God in person, Jesus Christ. We have the word of God in action, the cross. You see, the Bible, the word of God in text, reveals one man, a Messiah, a Christos, and his name is Jesus. And then it talks about what that one man will do to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all the text. It's not just that he's born. It's that he's going to live and he's going to do something very specific. So all of that is what we can call the word of God expressed to us. He has communicated. He has given us a revelation of his love, of his justice, of his truth, of mercy. Everything that he is has been revealed to us. How? Through the word. The word of God in text. The word of God in person. And the word of God in action at the cross. And where do, what do we as believers believe in? That. You don't just believe the Bible is a good book. You believe that it reveals Jesus. And you reveal that and, it, and you believe that what Jesus did on the cross is for you, and it's everything that you need, and it's everything that everyone else needs. We stake our eternity on that, on the word of God, the triumvirate. Sorry to use such a big word. I'm not trying to impress you with that one. I was trying to impress you with Logos, but that one, I wasn't. I'm, I'm joking, by the way, for those of you that don't know my humor. The Bible, the word of God is an accurate name for it. The canon of scripture, that's a very high-minded way of describing it, but it's accurate. The canon of scripture, meaning the 66 books of scripture, the authoritative word of God. Scripture, you can call, the, that's actually what the Bible calls itself. You know the Bible doesn't use the word Bible. It calls itself scripture, okay? So that's a, that's a very accurate way of describing it. Where did it come from and how did it get to us? Is it trustworthy? I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but over 1,400 years, I mentioned this last week, but over 1,400 years by over 40 authors, it was compiled supernaturally before a nation. And that nation knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is a divine book. Everything about this book is odd. Everything about it. It's not like any book written by men. It actually tells the weaknesses of the leaders of the very people that it was given to. I mean, could you imagine being a leader and having all your faults exposed? And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's like, hey, get rid of this book. I don't like this book. This book rebukes the very people that it was entrusted to. It exposes all their frailties. What's it doing? It's showing this people that they need a savior. 
It's an extraordinary, supernatural, amazing book. In, in a very simple sense, because I'll go into this at a lot greater level uh, as we progress, but the Bible is not just trustworthy. It is perfect in every regard. The way it is crafted is masterful. The more you study it, the more amazed you are. I mean, literally, all those people with all their high-minded accusations against the Scripture, just spend time in the book. You spend time in the book, and you become impressed with who God is and how this book is still around. <laughs> how did this make it? Entire nations have conspired to destroy the book, and guess what happened? Those nations were destroyed. It's just a book. How did a book defeat a nation? It's just a book. No, it's not. It's a capital B book, guys. It's God's word, and he has preserved it for us. Treat it as precious. Men and women throughout history have given up their life to see these words preserved. I think we should take it seriously. It all started back in uh, the book of Exodus in the time of Moses. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for memorial in a book. Isn't that an amazing thought? It's a God idea. It wasn't a Moses idea. It was a God idea. Write it down. You heard what I said, Moses. Write it. I, I like this. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. Uh, that's, I, I don't have time to go into that, but that's, that's a cool statement. Sorry, guys, to get you all stirred up on that one and then to have to move on. All right, I've said this every one of my episodes. This is the third episode in the glossary of the gospel. But there's a necessity that if you're going to take strong steps forward in the kingdom of heaven, it's not just having head knowledge. It's activating what you're doing, but it's also not doing it in your own strength. It's doing it via the Holy Spirit. When you handle truth, you have to handle it with God's help. So much of Christianity, if not the whole thing, is spiritually understood. There are certain things that people on the outside just look at Christians and are like, what's wrong with these people? It's because they don't have the Holy Spirit to help them understand how significant that is. I, I can stare at something and go, that is amazing. And the person next to me go, I don't see anything that's amazing. Ha! Aren't you seeing that right now? I mean, that's just extraordinary. They don't. They don't see it. You see, you can handle the text of Scripture, but if you don't have the one who inspired the people to write it, carried them along to write it, you won't understand it. You won't understand what God wants you to see. I mean, you could understand, you know, that it's text, and that it's telling a story, and you could repeat the story, but you're not going to get what God wants you to get out of it. So key exercises for this week. Bible reading. So remember, I would be talking to a new believer, and I'd be saying, okay, you want to take strong steps forward. Now, you'll notice that it doesn't say Bible study. That, that's to come. It's probably the next one on Wednesday. Bible reading and Bible study are actually different. Okay, now, they can be similar. In other words, when you are reading, it's hard. Like, for instance, when I read, it's hard for me not to stop and look something up. I mean, it just is, because I'm so used to that. But reading is a discipline in and of itself. And many Christians throughout the ages have actually read through the Bible many times over in their lifetime. It is very healthy to have a global perspective on Scripture so that when you are in a church environment and people are teaching on it, you have a sense of context so that you can better test what is being said. Because as a Christian, it is very, very important that you recognize that people, people can be wrong. And I'm pointing at myself. People can be wrong. Teachers can be wrong. And the onus of responsibility is on the individual student via the Holy Spirit with the text of Scripture to actually say, is that true? I want to learn 
to dig for it. And so the first step in that, of study comes. Study is very, very important in the Christian life. But learning to read it and getting familiar with the terrain of Scripture is of great importance. Okay, There's all sorts of different reading plans. Uh, and just to go straight through the first time can oftentimes be helpful because you see it in uh, the order that it's, it's placed out. But there are all sorts of reading plans that don't force you right into the book of Leviticus at the very beginning of your reading plan. More people have died in the book of Leviticus in their, in their read through the Bible plan than any other spot. You know, Genesis is a lot of fun. It's some great stories. But then Leviticus is just, you know, it's the, it's the cemetery uh, for many a young uh, Christian. So uh, just note that, and you know, so I want you to audaciously handle Leviticus. Leviticus is so profound when you understand Christ, but it's not very profound <laughs> if you don't. It's really hard to get through, but it is, it's truly amazing territory. Every word in this book is given by God for the edification of believers. All right, we're going to transition. Let's finish with prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word Thank you for your truth. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Lord, may we humble ourselves before your word in text, in person, and in action. What you have done is everything. And Lord, may we not wait till the last day when every knee is forced to bow, but may we gladly, with a heart full of love and worship, Bow our knee now and declare that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. You are deserving of all worship, honor, and praise. Thank you for this morning and the meditation. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.